That's March 22nd, so six weeks from now, March 22nd, Geneva's birthday. And by the way, Geneva and Jonathan, our daughter and son-in-law are here. Little Caleb's in another room, um, probably talking about his monster trucks. Anyway, um, we have spent the last number of weeks in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then focusing specifically on the concepts related to the spiritual gifts and we went through a rather extensive chart going through each one of the uh, spiritual gifts identified in in the New Testament uh, as kind of a deviation from our expositional study and I want to still stay in that topic today to talk about the controversial issue which you don't usually get to hear from a Sunday sermon uh, or even in other conversation, but the, the uh, controversy of whether or not the miraculous gifts, not the spiritual gifts, but the miraculous ones, usually meaning healing, prophecy, and tongues, whether or not they ceased after the passing of the apostles or whether they are still viable for today. The Let's just say this is a controversial subject. I gave a little bit of a preamble of it last week, but I forgot to give you the theme verse for this discussion. The theme verse for this discussion is Proverbs 18.17. You go, what? Well, what does that one say? It says, the first one to present his case seems right until the other one comes and examines him. why this is so controversial because you can have equally brilliant conservative evangelical believers disagreeing on this topic and what I appreciate about the majority of the arguments that I've read and come across is the lack of animosity between the groups generally I mean, there are some that get a little more vociferous than others, but generally there is a, let's debate this issue because it's not an issue of whether or not you're a Christian, at least in most circles. It's more of how are the gifts uh, utilized or should they be utilized. The two words are our key words here. It says, cessationism, which means they ceased back in probably the end of the first century, and continuationism, actually spelled it right, <laughs> continuationism, which means they still are viable for today. The I illustrated this last week, but again, not everybody was here, so I'm going to do it again. This can be illustrated by just three of many, many books that I have in my library. But you have the cessationist position is held by Tom Schreiner. Brilliant New Testament scholar. Absolutely brilliant New Testament scholar. And this is his new book, published just this last year, uh, on the spiritual gifts. About six years ago, seven years ago, the Gospel Coalition held a online or blogging debate and Tom Schreiner's article in the 
Duck Gospel Coalition is published, and he even mentions his future book that he was writing on this topic. So that's the cessationist position. Then you have the continuationist position. The Gospel Coalition asked Sam Storms to come up and present the continuationist position, and this is his new book published about five months ago called Practicing the Power, Welcoming the Gifts of the Holy Spirit in Your Life. He classifies himself as a charismatic Calvinist. And there would many people say that that's an oxymoron, but it's not necessarily. Uh, and he's one, he's one of the few. The other is Wayne Grudem, who is well known to he holds, uh, holds that position. And we've had Wayne Grudem teaching in our church and one of the main teachers at the Phoenix Seminary. There's a, another fellow who has an article on the Gospel Coalition. His name is Andrew Wilson, and he's more on the continuationist side, but he's a liturgical uh, pastor, uh, priest, if you want to call it, in the Church of England. His and his book is called The Spirit and Sacrament, an Invitation to Eucharismatic Worship. So they have the Eucharist, the Eucharismatic instead of, so he makes up this word that blends the two. You confused yet? Let's make it even worse. We have this book called, Are the Miraculous Gifts for Today? Four Views. I handed this out last week, but I'm going to do it again. This is, this chart is this book boiled down into one page for your tickles and grins, enjoyment, and thorough, thorough confusion. And I'm not going to necessarily go through all of these arguments, but I do want to kind of illustrate a little bit and just see if we can get these distributed. Hopefully I have enough for everyone to look at. There's a lot to absorb here, an awful lot to absorb. So if you each have that chart, or everybody have one? Or you have one from last week? Just throw some time. I know I've been missing. But um, when we went to our new, our new member class at the mm -hmm. end of last year, we were given a, a, a chart to go through. Um, the spiritual gifts, uh-huh. I think it's five pages long. But they, our church has put together uh, all the gifts. And then they put a description with what each one right. is. Did you know that that exists? I did not. Okay. I created my own. Okay. Just so you know, <laughs> there's something that's like five pages long if you ask. Oh, I'd, I'd be about. curious to know how they define describe them. Describe it, yeah. Because every church tends to describe them differently. So. I even went online to see the spiritual gift inventory tests. Mm -hmm. And there was one church that had a really wonderful, I mean, ask, answer these questions and this is most likely the area of service that you would fit in our church because then they had a list of things that people can do that your answer meant you fall into this category. But they left out these. So obviously that church is a cessationist church and intentionally left the miraculous gifts out in the inventory which makes a statement. So that's actually one way, if you're ever, you know, me moving to a new city and you're curious, that's one way to 
figure out where this church stands on an issue of this nature. Uh, but anyway, so just very quickly to look at the chart, you can see the four views across the top column. You've got cessationist on one end, continuationist is columns three and four, and a middle ground is column two. I read an article from one of these four writers talking about the creation of this book back in 1994, 1995. They were trying to figure out how to identify the four columns because there's no true common label <coughs> that you can give other than the four, first one and the fourth one, cessationist and Pentecostal or charismatic. And there would be even some that say there's a difference between Pentecostal and charismatic. We love to split things apart, don't we? And then you have this middle area where you have open but cautious. Well, that says, you know, yeah, they may have stopped, but we want to be open to it because who are we to tell God what he can or cannot do? And then you have what's called the third wave. That's a term that came out of the 70s. Um, it's really hard to define other than to say John Wimber and the Vineyard Church movement. That movement was focused very strongly on healing and the power of healing in, through the individual. And now you hear about vineyard churches all over the country uh, that fall into that category. And it's a continuationist position because they believe in certain of the miraculous gifts being performed in the church. You will notice if you look at this very carefully and if you want to study this, go to, across each row and read them, either read them out loud because you'll find many of them, like on the first section, existence, they all say the same thing, all four of them. But they start to break apart when you get down into things like terms, where they, ter they define prophecy, tongues, and healings differently. If you ever get into a debate on any topic with anyone, whether it's theological, political, relational, define your terms. Because you could be saying the same thing, but your definitions are different of how that word is used. And right away you see how two strong positions can come together and they end up talking opposite, but they're saying, using the same words, but in different ways. And that's an important thing to notice. For most of us, <coughs> you see the under the empowerment section, which is section six, one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, two thirds of the way down the page. You'll notice the first two say the same thing. The third one, reads, there's no empowerment distinct from conversion, but then as a comma, though the intensity of the spirit changes by situation. And then the fourth says, there is a second baptism of the spirit after conversion. It called a spirit baptism in tongues is a sign of this. Wow, that's a big deviation from the other three. And right away, you will see the separation. Now, one of the challenges Again, whenever you teach this or ever you explore this, is that 
each of us comes from different backgrounds in this room. There's some of you here that came from a Pentecostal or an Assembly of God or even a charismatic background. You have others that would maybe came from a Church of Christ background, which is you can't even have instruments in worship service. It's a cappella worship. I mean, just you've got these contrasts that people can come into the same room and we tend to dig in because either we've studied it and that's fine but as part of a class we're exploring these and the various uh, things that are going back and forth to help for those of you who haven't heard any of this before and I'm not a, I don't like to assume everyone understands this equally but this past week a blogger by the name of David French was talking about some of the, let's just call it um, overt charismatic language that was being, uh, that was showing up in the newsreels because of a well-known charismatic female preacher who's a advisor to the President of the United States was saying some things and the non- Christian, the secular media went, what in the world, what craziness is this? Well, because they don't understand Pentecostalism. And so this fellow said, he wrote something that's really well done, and I just want to read a few of his passages to help all of us understand maybe the history of the Pentecostal movement that we are a part of in our society right now. Prior to 1906, the charismatic movement that we call today didn't exist, for lack of a better term. It may have been in pockets and places, but as we see it now, it didn't exist. So I'll just read, this is kind of help. And I'm pulling his blog apart very selectively just for the sake of uh, clarity and time. The modern incarnation of Pentecostal, also sometimes referred to as charismatic Christianity, was born at the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Los Angeles. It was led by an African-American pastor named William Seymour, and the revival was marked by exuberant, hours-long worship services. <clears throat> now, American revivals featuring hours-long services are nothing new. But this revival featured the gifts of the Spirit. Pentecostals reject a Protestant doctrine called cessationism, which holds that God has withdrawn most of the Spirit's supernatural gifts the apostles exercised in the early church, including prophecy, tongues, and gifts of healing, like I've already said. Those gifts, they argue, existed for a time and a purpose, and they exist no longer, at least not in the common practice of the church. The Pentecostal... Christians utterly reject this idea. They believe the believers aren't just baptized by water, they are at a distinct moment baptized by the Holy Spirit, and that spirit baptism can endow believers with all the spiritual power and spiritual gifts of the early church. Rarely has a spiritual movement grown more potent more quickly. And rarely has a religious revolution, revolution gone relatively unnoticed by Western media. In 1906, there were a few hundred folks gathered 
at the Apostolic Faith Mission in Azusa, the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles. By this year, there are one half billion Pentecostals worldwide. So in 100 years, it goes from a couple hundred to half a billion, which is almost double the size of the United States in population. It's a lot of people. The single largest Protestant church in the world is in Seoul, Korea. Uh, Yangi Cho, I believe, is the um, head of that, or was, I don't know what they're at. They've got 100,000 people who show up every Sunday. 100,000. Just put that in perspective. You cannot put 100,000 inside any of our stadiums in this state. It just wouldn't fit. You would fill, I think you could fill the University of Michigan Stadium, but that's it. I don't, there's not very many places where 100,000 people can come at once. Even they can't. They have like 12 services to accommodate them all. That's astounding. Astounding. Most Pentecostals believe in the gift of tongues, they believe in the gift of prophecy, and they believe in gifts of healing. And then this is where he deviates a little bit, and I don't want to get too far into this, but it's helpful, I think, for our discussion. They most definitely believe in spiritual warfare. To be clear, the concept of spiritual warfare isn't unique to Pentecostal Christianity. Even cessationists believe in angels and demons. Even the Catholic Church carries out exorcisms. It's impossible to believe the Bible is the word of God and not see that there's an existing spiritual realm. The difference is that the Pentecostal side, more than virtually any other branch of Christianity, emphasizes the spiritual realm as the critical sphere of battle, not just for salvation, but also for health, prosperity, and even national well-being. I'm going to continue. Just bear with me. I know I'm reading and it's not quite as interesting, but... It, it's just setting our stage here. Think of spiritual warfare existing on a spectrum with folks on the more moderate end praying, for example, praying that the demonic spirit of addiction release their son or daughter. And the person in the radical edge develops an entire battle plan against the malign spirits that torment specific parts of the world from the demonic realm. And some believe in what's called territorial spirits a concept based in part in Daniel 10, where an angelic being indicates he was delayed coming to Daniel because of the prince of the kingdom of Persia that opposed him for 21 days. It's plain in the context that Daniel is actually referring not to human princes, but rather to angelic conflict. So how does this play out in real life? How does this make Pentecostal Christians, especially those deeply involved in spiritual warfare, different from evangelicals who also believe in angels and demons, but don't have the same theology. Let's imagine a cessationist Baptist church sending a missionary to a city. The pastor and congregation would pray, let the people hear the message and have eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel. They may pray for God to open doors and that people would have soft hearts and open minds. We've all heard these prayers. They also pray that God grant the missionary extraordinary courage and wisdom. And each prayer represents a request for supernatural intervention 
but they're not specifically aimed at heavenly beings. Take that same scenario inside a Pentecostal church. This church sending missionaries to the same place will pray differently. In addition to the above prayers, they would also pray to bind the strong man, the demonic entity that Satan has sent to govern the demons of the city. And they will take authority or declare their power over all the demonic spirits. And the prayer warriors are receptive to the Holy Spirit during the prayer. And they get even more targeted, naming and calling out various kinds of demonic spirits. Again, you may have seen this, heard this, or experienced it yourself. Where it all falls apart, as David French writes this, he says... Pentecostalism, like all Christian traditions, is vulnerable to exploitation, to false hope, and false teachers. For example, the heretical prosperity gospel is a viral infection within the Pentecostal church. So you have those who say, if you have enough faith or you believe in this, you will be rich. There's nowhere in scripture that says that. Nowhere. And yet, entire swaths of that side will claim it. Which is one of the reasons why there's such a strong reaction to the the derivations or the deviations of it. It says, however, and this is someone who's sympathetic to the Pentecostal position in his writing. The story of Pentecostal is not a story of vulnerable people easily manipulated, it's often a story of extraordinary faith, remarkable courage, astonishing compassion, and revolutionary personal change. Well, that's a, that was a long passage, thank you for listening to it, but I think it helps kind of set the stage. You have this idea that there's been this separation, and isn't it interesting that one of the themes in Corinthians and we find this in the latter half of this chapter 12, is disunity instead of unity. These issues have been splitting up the Corinthian church. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still messed up. Fascinating. So, I'm going to try... That's an operative word here. I'm going to try my best to lay out the two arguments so you can hear them, what the sensationists say, and how the continuationists would respond to that. Part of that is in this book, because each of the four people stand up, make their case, and then the other three reply to it. Then the second guy stands up, makes his case, and the other three reply to him. And so it's a back and forth. If you want to look at this book, it's really quite extraordinary. And you're thoroughly confused when you're done. Because there's no conclusion at the end. That's the point of these books. The point of these books is saying there's four views. Um, You either pick one, or you kind of throw up your hands and go, I'm not smart enough to know. As I, when I spoke in tongues last week, uh, and Tom interpreted for us, we all know that I'm not very smart. Uh, because I asked him to translate what I was saying to illustrate a point. All right. The first, there are five areas of common debate 
between these two uh, conversations. In fact, there'll be many of you that if you were to ever get in the room together, you would probably lay out the statements. The first is scripture. The cessationist would cite 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. So if you have your Bible and you want to look at it, so it's 1 Corinthians 13, the very next chapter from where we're studying, verses 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's an interesting passage. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> the cessationist position would say that the perfect there is related to, excuse me, this, the Bible. That when the Bible is complete, which it was very soon at the end of the apostolic age, that these specific gifts which were used as signs of apostolic authority passed away. The continuationist position points at that scripture and says, well, actually, that's commented on in verse 12, where it says, we now see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Then referring to the when the perfect comes. And they're saying that's at the second coming of Christ. You know, talk amongst yourselves. You figure out which one's right. But that's the difference. You can have the statement, but then the other would say, well, no, it's not talking about the Bible. It's actually talking about the second coming. Second Corinthians is another verse. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. The sign of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. Meaning that the miraculous gifts were only performed by the apostles or with the apostle authority. The continuationist says that it is true, however, you have some who are not apostles performing those same gifts. You have Stephen in Acts chapter 6, you have Philip in Acts chapter 8. And they also will claim that if this were true, then why did Paul write about it so plainly, so late in the early church? And even in 1 Corinthians 14.5, he writes, I wish you all spoke in tongues, and even more that you prophesy. And you might say, well, you know, he's talking about the current situation. True, but there's always the immediate and the future application of Scripture. So which is it? Even in Hebrews, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord... It was attested to us by those who heard it, while God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there you have the writer of Hebrews making a statement that 
the gifts of the Spirit were being utilized by God. So which is it? Notice I'm not concluding. I'm just letting you hear both sides. The second area of deviation, and this is what I talked about in the beginning, is terminology. These are often not only called the miraculous gifts, sometimes you hear them to, uh, called the sign gifts. That the idea of someone with the gift of healing was done in a manner that it was a sign to those that were seeing it as a sign of God's presence and God's authority as a testimony. And even today, and I'm, again, we have to remember, we have to, we have to separate the power of healing from the gift of healing. Make sure you do that first. Because you, you would be really wrong to say that God does not heal. Because he does. We pray for God's healing. His mercy and his grace in all things. The gift of healing is that spiritual gift given to an individual who then, through the power of God, applies it. Uh, I was reading, talking with someone, and I remember now, I've had so many conversations about this in the last few weeks. They said, any time one of the miraculous gifts is publicized, think twice about its validity. I mean, you had mentioned the gift of prophecy and the person who had a seminar at a hotel downtown. Yeah, she's making money on it and saying, I can teach you how to do it in five easy steps. Goodness, you want to speak in tongues? Go to wikihow.com. I'm not kidding. I looked it up. And there is actually a recipe for how to speak in tongues. It's just right there on the internet. You start with baby babble, saying uh, syllables that have no meaning together. And you just kind of practice at it, and then it just becomes natural, kind of going, wow, it's on the internet. On, it's also, you can look up how to fix your toilet on the same website. <laughs> Isn't that kind of a uh, parallel? But anyway, uh, it's how to do various things. And you kind of go, is it really like that? I'm not so sure, because that doesn't sound like a gift of the Spirit. That sounds like someone attempting to sound like they have it. Because that means it wasn't natural to start with. And so you have to look up on the internet on how to make it work. Sorry, you now it's starting to hear some of my opinions. Um, <laughs> anyway. So if 2 Corinthians 12.12 12, is saying that the miraculous gifts are limited to the apostles to validate authority, then you have this problem of them continuing later. And if you also notice that Hebrews 2 passage is in the past tense. It's not, the language there isn't the uh, imperfect, meaning it continues. So does that mean it ended? Huh. All right. So we have the terms of sign gifts indicate that God has certain ability only to the apostles. Well, the continuations will say the sign gifts are supernatural abilities given by God to whomever he chooses in order to accomplish whatever his purpose is at any time. <clears throat> and that is one 
weakness, and again, you hear my opinion, uh, one weakness of the continuationist position is to say, well, God can't do that. Or God doesn't do that. Well, that's where the open but cautious column in your chart. You say, well, yeah, but it, there's so much misuse of this. How do we shut that down? How do we discern? I, had one, I, I mentioned this last week or the week before, that one of the most important spiritual gifts in the life of the church is the gift of discernment. Because many people don't have it. That's why Proverbs 18:17 is so important. Because they hear one thing and go, oh, wow, that's great. And then they hear the opposite and go, oh, wow, that's great. And they can't tell. It's whoever was said it most potently <clears throat> or most recently or with the most charisma or personality. And that's where they follow. And you see a lot of people who have opinions on the internet who have no discernment. They're just spouting what they've heard and not filtered it on their own. <clears throat> the other word that gets messed up, and we talked about this a little last week at, at length actually, is the word prophecy. The problem is that the cessationists rightly point to those who equate their personal revelations to scripture. So they have a word from the Lord and they, they proclaim it and say, and because I say it, you must follow it. And yet, when you apply it and place it next to Scripture, it's a variation or a deviation. That's dangerous. Really dangerous. I mean, we can talk about the horrific side of that, and you can think of the Jim Jones cult, who they all believe Jim Jones, and then they go down drink Kool-Aid and they all die. Well, that's, yeah, that's the outgrowth of that kind of thinking. Uh, you can look at the Mormon church, the entire Latter-day Saints organization is based on the prophecies of one man, Joseph Smith. And it's a deviation from scripture or an addition to. They can say, well, the Bible's okay, but we have more. Anytime you have someone who starts that or says that, you have to go, wait, what? Be very careful. Now, as I wrote here, so the majority of continuationists, when it comes to prophecy, they agree with the cessationists that no new revelation is out to supplant scripture. However, even Charles Spurgeon, in his autobiography, talks about miraculous prophetic events that happened in his ministry where he would suddenly say something very specific in one of his sermons about someone in that room. He didn't know who it was. And he would proclaim the sin in their life. And he would after, afterwards, where did that come from? That wasn't in my notes. I wasn't planning on it. And then the next day, two, three days later, that individual would come to Pastor Spurgeon and go, you were talking to me, weren't you? And go, oh, I, what, who are you? 
You're one of the thousands of people in the, in the tabernacle. And it was very specific. He said it happened multiple times. And he has no inkling other than to say, that's the gift of prophecy. So you kind of go, okay, let's define prophecy. Well, let's move on. Let's go to the fun one, which we will get into much more detail, hopefully, when we get to chapter 14. It's the issue of tongues. You know, aren't you glad you're not the teacher? Um, <clears throat> the use, the abuse, and the misuse of this particular gift of the Spirit is probably the flashpoint of the entire cessationist versus continuationist debate. More than anything else. The cessationist would state that tongues is specifically and only the physical languages of human beings. You know, French, German, name a language that you know or, or are a part of. I mean, it's the physical languages that we use to communicate with each other. Because at Pentecost, multiple languages were being spoken by people who didn't know those languages, and there were people then who could hear it and understand it. Unfortunately, the um, expression of tongues in non-physical languages, as I mentioned the WikiHow um, conversation type, is often attributed by the cessationist and sometimes by the continuationist to demonic activity or emotional hysteria. I talked with one uh, gentleman recently who said that they believe, and they're more on the continuationist side, but they believe that the gift of tongues is the gift of human languages that missionaries have who go to a foreign land because they're able to learn the languages fairly rapidly. And there would be some would say, well, if it was a true gift of tongues, they wouldn't have to go to school. They'd just learn it. It just suddenly, boom, and then now they're talking in the other language. However, I think often in the gifts of tongues, you don't know what you're saying. You're just speaking. Let's just say I suddenly broke into, um, I don't know, Norwegian. Is there anybody in this room who knows Norwegian? Then I better not start doing it because there would be no interpretation. And you wouldn't even know if I was saying anything spiritual or not. So there's that debate. The continuationists agree that some claim as spirit-inspired is actually only emotional sensationalism. You have to realize that Satan has always counterfeited the miraculous works of God of all kinds. And he still does. But counterfeit does not negate authenticity. A counterfeit only is counterfeit if it's counterfeiting something that's real. So we have to make sure you don't say, well, this isn't real. Well, then there's no such thing as a counterfeit because it, there's nothing, there's no um, 
litmus test, or there's nothing to compare it to. And you have Acts 16, 16, where Paul and Silas confront a demon-possessed girl and her gift of prophecy. She was demon-possessed and had this gift, and they shut her down, rightly so. Well, the continuationist suggests, so we got the continuations on the other side of this column here, that there are two forms of tongues. There's the physical languages and there's the spirit languages. Acts 2 is the physical, the Pentecost. The continuation would say that 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul is talking about something different. Because in chapter 14, verse 28, Paul writes, if there's no interpreter of tongues, the speaker should keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God, which is where the idea of a prayer language and tongues comes from. And it's a scriptural basis. And also, you have to look at that. It, the church in Corinth is not being chastised for using the gift. They're being chastised for misusing the gift. Because Paul earlier says there is the gift, but you guys are screwing it up. You're messing with it. Does that make sense? All right. Boy, you guys are quiet, but that's okay because I'm not smart enough to have a conversation about it. Um, the third is the area of church history. I'm sorry, the fourth, church history. The cessationist says there's no historical indication of the miraculous gifts continuing after the deaths of the apostles. And not until the Pentecostal movement of the 20th century, starting in 1906, does it appear so vividly? There may have been, like I said, pockets of its use, but not something as widespread as what we're dealing with today. I mean, you made the choice to come to Camelback Bible Church. You could have gone to any one of the num many number of charismatic churches in this community. There's dozens and dozens of them. And when I ran the Christian bookstores in this town, the Berean Christian stores, we had 500 church accounts. There's a lot of churches in this town. And they all came to our store. And we had to be sweet, uh, Switzerland. <laughs> we had to be the safe place where you didn't matter. And I had employees literally on opposite sides of the aisle. My music department guy was a holy rolling Pentecostal. The guy who ran the book department, cessationist to the core. And I said, you guys will not debate this over the aisle. You will debate it in the back room where no one can hear you. Because that isn't what we're here for, is to change each other's minds. We're here to serve the church community. And wow, it's, it's an if you ever had the experience of working in a Christian bookstore, it's really fascinating because every flavor, every flavor comes through those doors and they shop the same books. It's hilarious. I, this is completely off the, the, uh, the, the trail here, but I still remember the Catholic nun who was a regular, but she wouldn't wear her habit. She was, we just knew her as sister so-and-so. She would come in the store and she's in the theology section or she's in the Christian living section. 
But then there was a, let's just say, a vehement anti-Catholic who was a regular. And there was one day they both were in the store at the same time and they're standing next to each other, shopping the same books, and we are praying fervently that they not talk to each other. <laughs> because, boom, it would have been fireworks and everything else. And it was just so fun for us to just sit back and watch them because they're looking for help, sustenance in their Christian life. It's fascinating. Anyway, that's another debate for another time. So church history. Cessationist says it ended and there's no record. Well, the continuationists will cite the, these following examples. Justin Martyr, who died in 165, an early church historian, stated, quote, the prophetical gifts remain with us even to the present time. Now it is possible to see among us women and men who possess gifts of the Spirit of God, end quote. Irenaeus, who, who died in 200 AD, said, quote, we do also hear many brethren in the church who possess, possess prophetic gifts and through the Spirit speak all kinds of languages. Notice that language, terminology. The dead have even been raised up and remain among us for many years. Whoa. Or Novation, who died in 280 BC, uh, AD. Quote, this is the Holy Spirit who places prophets in the church, instructs teachers, directs tongues, gives powers and healings, and does wonderful works. End quote. Augustine who died in 430 AD, is often cited as an early church father who rejected the continuationism and actually was a cessationist. And that was true early in his ministry. However, later in life, he was so impacted by the healings and miracles that he observed firsthand, he wrote in the book, City of God, quote, I am so pressed by the promise of finishing this work that I cannot record all the miracles that I know. And then more recently, we can cite John Wesley, A.W. Tozer, Oswald Chambers, A.B. Simpson, Andrew Murray, R.A. Torrey, and J.P. Moreland as those who fall into the continuationist camp and who believe that the spirit gifts are active in this world today. Lastly, is silence. The cessationists would say that Paul, after this, and after his statement in Rome, through the book of, in the book of Romans, which is the next book we study after the Corinthians, it goes first and second Corinthians, then Romans in chronological order, he really doesn't make overt um, mention of the miraculous gifts even in the list in Ephesians, he only lists prophets, not prophecy, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He doesn't list any of the, the spirit gifts. And First and Second Timothy, in all of his encouragement to his young protege, he never mentions the spirit's gifts. And so they're saying, no, because he doesn't mention them, then obviously they have lacked importance. This is the continuationists say that a lack of reference to a subject doesn't remotely suggest that a previous teaching has changed. 
They simply say that in Ephesus, Philippi, and Colossae, it wasn't an issue. So Paul wasn't addressing the issue because those churches had it figured out. <laughs> Don't you love it? Debaters are really good about this. So I, I don't know where you guys sit on this issue and we could talk about it if you would like. There is a sense. I mean, I come from Southern Baptist growing up. I think I've told you about my dad's background of being in a, uh, let's just call it a more charismatic or Pentecostal Lutheran tradition of healings and in the service, in the worship services themselves from her, his great grandmother. And yet my dad went to a cessationist position. So I grew up not even knowing this position at all. It wasn't even debate. The very first book I ever read <clears throat> on the Holy Spirit was writ written by W.A. Criswell, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, the largest Southern Baptist church in the denomination at the time. And he's a cessationist, and that's where I started. And yet, the problem is, <clears throat> when you read widely, um, and my gift it may be teaching, it's not discernment, <laughs> uh, necessarily. I can say, here's the various positions and so you end up getting a little confused as to which is right <coughs> or, excuse me, <coughs> or wrong, but maybe that's the wrong phrase. Is it right or wrong? I'm not sure you could actually say either position is right all the time or wrong all the time. It's more of a, well, let's discuss this because it does not change the core beliefs of the believer. I wrote here, every Christian should seek to walk worthy, to seek what is best in all manner of things and in all situations. The, mere, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit are stated in 1 Corinthians 12 that they are for the common good. And if we start to go to war over this, it's no longer good. It may be common, <laughs> but it's not good. At the same time, you get some wild-haired stuff that gets out there. And you kind of sit back and go, whoa. You think of the Brownsville Revival and the Toronto Blessing. Do those names mean anything to you? Okay. The Holy Laughter Movement, where the expression of the power of the Spirit falling on the congregations as everyone would just burst out laughing. I mean, that's just flat out strange. Is that good? Bill Johnson. Bill, that's Bill Johnson, exactly. Yeah, all right. he's, expect, he's expecting to raise someone from the dead. Right, right. And yet, there are examples in Africa, India, other places where conservative side see the raising of the dead. And you kind of go, ah, were they really dead? I don't know. Even had lunch with a fellow just this past week who had someone, they think, expired during their church service. 
and they're United Presbyterian. And everyone was rushing to the front. The, guy, the fellow just keeled over in, in the pew. And a doctor ran over and said he has no pulse. And they you know, start doing the compression. 10, 15 minutes later, the paramedics come and there's nothing. And then suddenly he begins to takes a deep breath and he sits up and goes, well, what's all the fuss? What's going on? He goes, you died. He goes, I did? Well, maybe he didn't, but he didn't have a pulse. Doesn't mean his brainwave stopped, but he stopped breathing. Well, what, what is the difference? Now you can say, all right, was there a gift of healing going on at that moment? Probably not. There wasn't any sort of uh, specific laying on of hands by someone who was identified with that gift. And that's where the deviations come. The Toronto Blessing, golly, I mean, I saw some videos of this stuff. It's, it, to me, it's cacophony. Makes no sense. Uh, or you had the, the time where Benny Hinn got very famous with his Holy Ghost machine gun, where everyone would be lined up in the front, and he would go, and they would all slay in the spirit, fall back. As they passed, bam, and he called it his Holy Ghost machine gun. Yeah, well, it's hilarious because well, you it's go. Because it's ridiculous. It sounds absolutely ridiculous. Well, and I want to throw something out here. Please. As we're studying these, these spiritual gifts, remembering that they are from the Holy Spirit, right. they are supernatural. We also have to remember that they are according to the character of God. Exactly. Not according to what we think it is or what. Uh, you know, God's a God of order. He's not going to use his gifts to create a bunch of chaos. Exactly. God's a God of transcendence. So some of this we're just not ever going to understand it until we're with him in glory. Um, but we, I think the biggest thing is not to separate the gifts so much that we forget that they come from God. And the more you know of who God is, it might help describe more of what the gifts are. Because if we, if we separate them and try to figure out what each person each person's gifts are. No, no, no. They come from God who has characters and uh, character and attributes. And those gifts come straight out of that character and those attributes. And so I well said. that's how we can kind of discern what's the silly and the man-made and what may not Maybe from God. And one of the dangers is that when we start going, well, what do I have? Well, who's the subject of that sentence? Mm -hmm. Me. Right. This isn't about us. No. Not at all. It's for the common good, for the body of the of church of the of Christ. I wrote here, some charismatic groups give higher priority to experience rather than relationship. But some rationalistic evangelicals give higher priority to knowledge than relationships. Both are wrong. One chases the emotional high, the other even never bothers to seek it. They both seek control over the spirit. If I can say, I will now speak in tongues, really? It's a switch. Yeah, click. Hey, now I'm just going to do... No. I mean, that, that doesn't feel right. And at the same time, 
many of us have may have either been in congregations or been in organizations where the spirit the power of the spirit is never even mentioned it's either all about jesus or all about god you forget that the spirit is part of who god is and the power of that spirit has it indwells in us so that we might be able to minister to others. It isn't about us. Well, can I just offer a Please. One thing you do see, though, in, in cases where the Holy Spirit works, so even when the Holy Spirit ascends like a dove on Christ, right? what's the role the Holy Spirit is doing? Is it bringing glory to himself or bringing glory to the Son? Right. The Spirit's always bringing glory to the Son. That's just we see, right? And so we should expect spiritual gifts ultimately to bring glory to the Son, not to the Spirit. Right. But, I mean, would, see that, that would make sense. Yeah. And with everything, it's, a, it's an issue of balance. And we just have to be very careful. When you're talking with someone, let's say you're talking with a friend or an acquaintance, or you get in a conversation from someone who comes from a different position or tradition. Very careful, you don't immediately try to shut it down saying that just doesn't happen. What you have to say is, well, explain what you mean. Define the terms. Then start having the conversation. And then, because some, there are some churches that say, you are not a Christian unless you speak in tongues. And I have to just say, well, show me where that says that. Please, educate me. I want to know. Little testimony. Okay, I've never told you guys this story. I don't think I have anyway. I've told so so many stories. Uh, You probably know more about me than I know about you. Um, So many years ago, we're part of a, Lisa and I were part of a, a singing, creative worship group that traveled around the country and around the world. Um, it was back when she hated my guts, but that's another story. Um, and I had begun reading deeply. I was reading, like I mentioned, W.A. Criswell and uh, Jack Taylor's Key to Triumphant Living and much more, and uh, Bruce Larson and Keith Miller. And I had been just this whole idea of the Pentecostal movement and the power of the Spirit, I kept thinking, I don't have that. Something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with my spiritual life. So what we would do is we would perform at a particular church for two or three days, and then we would get in the van, the 13 of us, and drive to the next town and we would perform again and we would do uh, we would stay in people's homes one of the places it was in northern california um, that particular homestay i was the only one there and there was no car and we weren't rehearsing that day and the hosts left so i had the whole house to myself probably for a good eight nine hours that morning into the early afternoon and i thought today's the day I am going to learn how to speak in tongues. I'm going to pray for this gift. I'll stand here. I'll admit to it. 
for hours. I prayed fervently. I was in tears. I was on the floor, face down, crying out to God. Like Jacob saying, bless me. Hours. And after a while, long while, finally got up and went, well, nothing happened. Huh. I was dumb. Just wasted my day. You know, my friends, I look back on that day and I could say at the time that nothing changed. But you know what? Everything changed. Why? Because it wasn't about me totally. I tried to, and I did, lay myself completely at the altar of God and saying, I am yours. Do whatever you wish to me. And that's what he was waiting for. Finally, Steve, it's not about you. You have sacrificed yourself before me. And I simply choose not to give you that particular gift. You don't need it. And who knows what manifestation of the Spirit. But I look at that spot and that time in my life as when that along with reading Knowing God and some other situations where I was put right side up. Where I had been upside down. When it comes to the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, God through Christ, through the Spirit, is asking for us to be His, not our own. And you will see that when we get into the rest of chapter 12, because it's the body of Christ, the common good. It's what we are here for is for each other, not for ourselves. And I think that lesson is probably the most powerful lesson that we could ever learn. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for this discussion. Actually, it was more of a lecture, but it's this conversation, I guess you can say, on this very contentious issue. It's confusing to many of us. And Lord, we just ask for your mercy, your grace, your wisdom, your discernment to give us the ability to sort these types of things out so that we are not confused and that we are not taken down a path into wrong thinking, heresy, um, deviation from your will. But let us seek your face in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.